Thank you, Brother Daniel. Take your Bibles, find the Gospel of John, chapter 11 with me this morning. The Gospel of John in the 11th chapter. I've said this several times as you preach through a book, like we're doing on Sunday morning, that when you preach through a book, the next text is the next text. Sometimes it is just the next verse. Sometimes it seems to be especially appropriate or pertinent for the hour. And this week, when I came to the gospel for my studies for this week, I came to this story, John chapter 11. And if anybody ever needed this story this week, it was me. John chapter 11, we don't have time to tell all of the story, and so I'm going to give you just a little part of it. We'll actually get to the resurrection in a couple of weeks. But John chapter 11 and verse number 1, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he'd heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples said to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Albeit Jesus spake of his death, for they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent you may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, and his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. For several weeks we have been in a Jerusalem scene toward the close of the Lord's earthly ministry. In John chapter 7, Jesus had come into Jerusalem for the annual Feast of Tabernacles. And so John 7, 8, 9, and 10 tells of encounters in or around Jerusalem and really the temple area. And then Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he's gone for a couple of months. He comes back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. We looked at that last week in John 10. One final encounter is the last public appearance of the Lord. The Jews had again picked up stones to again try to stone him. He has escaped from them as he departed into the countryside of Judea. The Feast of Dedication took place in the winter during our 
month of December. And so this puts us only three to four months away from the week of crucifixion, which is going to take place in the spring of the following year. And sometime in that three to four month interval of absence, Jesus makes this journey back down to Bethany to heal Lazarus from the dead. And then he's going to retreat back to the city of Ephraim to wait out the final few weeks or months before it is time to come to Jerusalem and be crucified. The story that I have read to you takes place in the home of a brother and two sisters that are living in Bethany. Bethany was a very small village that was only about two miles east of Jerusalem. You could walk out of the city limits of old Jerusalem, walk down the Kidron Valley, cross a little brook, climb back up the slope of the Mount of Olives, and just on the other side of that little mountain was the little city of Bethany. And though it was just a very small village out of the way, there are several things that took place in Bethany that makes it significant in the Bible. Bethany was the house, was the home of Simon the leper, where the woman would take the box of ointment and anoint the feet of the Lord Jesus. Bethany was also the place where Jesus cursed the fig tree and, and where he would stay during the final week and, and during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then uh, the crucifixion. Every day, Jesus would walk back and forth and he would stay at Bethany and come back to Jerusalem. We know that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. However, Luke chapter 24 tells us that he led them out as far as Bethany before he was received back into heaven. So Bethany was real close to the place where Jesus ascended back into heaven. And since Zechariah 14.4 says that he's going to come back to the same place that he left, then Bethany is going to see him when he comes again. A little interesting little side note, if I could, the main gate coming out of Jerusalem toward the east is called the Golden Gate. The Golden Gate. That would be the gate that you would walk through if you were uh, leaving or entering Jerusalem from that side of the city. So whenever Jesus uh, left Jerusalem and went that way or went into Bethany or, or when he led the disciples out uh, uh, from the upper room and led them to the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have walked through the Golden Gate. Sometimes we call it the Eastern Gate in our Gospel songs, but, but the Bible never calls it the Eastern Gate. The name of it was the Golden Gate. And what's so interesting about that gate is that in the 1500s, Jerusalem came under control of the Ottoman Empire. And in 1541, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire was a man named Solomon the Magnificent. He, he called himself that. He, he was thought highly of himself. And Solomon the Magnificent knew of the prophecy that Jesus was coming back the same way he had left. And so Solomon the Magnificent in 1541, he sealed that gate closed. And then they started a cemetery right outside of that gate on the slope toward the Temple Mount. And so that gate was sealed closed because, because and a cemetery planted there because how clever to stop Jesus from coming back in because no Jew would walk through a cemetery because if he walks and touches anything that's connected to the dead, he defiles himself. So, so how clever of Solomon the Magnificent. By the way, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, that gate is still shut. I have stood on the Mount of Olives and I've looked and I've seen, you've seen that, you've seen that cemetery and you've seen that gate and it's still sealed shut since 1541. 
And when I think about that, I, I would love it. It has nothing to do with the message, but I would love it if the Lord would resurrect Solomon the Magnificent a little early, give him a front row seat to when he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits north and south, makes a new pathway, and he leads us right up to the gate, opens it up, and walks right in. I would just love it if Solomon could be there. I just think that would be magnificent if that could happen. The story takes place in Bethany and it's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And it takes us into the home of two sisters and a brother. And all that we know about Lazarus and all of the Bible is told in this verse, a certain man. It is the only time that he's mentioned in the Bible. So we know virtually nothing about him except what is found in these verses. We believe that he was a believer because his two sisters were a believer. There's another Lazarus in Luke 16. It's not the same Lazarus. Seems a little strange that a brother and two sisters are living together, so it makes us wonder if their parents are dead or what the story there is. But here is Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Lazarus is a familiar Jewish name. It is the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Eleazar, which means God helps. That's what his name means. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they play a significant part in this story. And evidently, whenever Jesus was in the vicinity, he, he would use their house for lodging. It would seem that Jesus has spent many evenings at their table. He spent many nights in comfort in their home. When we think of Martha and Mary, we think of that little spat that they had because Martha was in the kitchen fixing dinner and Mary was in the living room having devotions with Jesus. That, that's what we normally think of. And sometimes Martha always gets the negative end of the story. But I just want to say in her defense that she loved the Lord just as much as Mary did. And I can't preach this this morning, but in this chapter she's going to make a great declaration of faith. And so, so I, I don't want to say anything negative about Martha because all three of them had a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus. You will notice that verse number 2 is in parentheses. And it's placed in parentheses because what happens in verse 2 has not actually happened yet. It actually happens in the next chapter after the resurrection of Lazarus. John's gospel is written many, many years after it's the last gospel to be written. And, and Mark, Matthew and Mark and Luke have been circulating among the churches for some time. And Matthew and Mark tell about the account of this woman anointing the feet of Jesus. And so John just inserts it here just so you know which Mary that they're talking about. But that's actually going to happen in chapter number 12. But in this scene, John takes us into the home of three Young believers. And since they are all believers, I imagine that their home has an air of serenity and peace. Because a Christian home is supposed to be a pleasant and a peaceful place. I imagine that if we could go into that home, that there are scripture placards on the wall, and a Bible prominently displayed, and Christian music softly in the background. And we think that because that's the image that we try to portray, right? Uh, we're Christians, we're church people, so all is well. This is a home where Jesus has resided. Jesus himself has been a guest in this home, and when Jesus is in the home, all is well. <laughs> Even this week, I have had preachers calling me, and they've asked, uh, how are you doing? 
And Brother Jason, my automatic response, we're doing good. I, we're doing fine. Everything is good. And then I've had to catch myself because this week everything was not all well. You, you understand that. But, but that's what we want to say. But I want to say that no matter how good or bad you live, how faithful you are to church, no matter what your faith promise is, troubles come to even Christian homes. You know the trials that our family is facing. I know the trials that you are facing. I have a preacher friend right now who has terminal cancer. I have preacher friends who, who are taking care of, an, of a terminally ill wife. I have friends whose homes are broken, whose lives are wrecked, whose children are gone. And here's the thing I ponder. How do some of the worldliest people that I know, everything is doing fine, and some of the holiest people that I know are in a dark valley? And we don't want to come to church every Sunday and talk about all our problems because then all that we would do is just depress each other. In fact, I don't even like to get up here with a heavy heart because I don't want my heaviness to put a damper of spirit on the rest of the church. So, so, so here's what I do. I do what you do. I put on my brave face and I act like everything is just fine. But sometimes it's harder to worship than at other times. And I think that if we could go behind the closed doors of good Christian homes, we'd find that all is not always well. Families here that are under financial stress. There's marriages in this room that are not on good standing. Some of you, you're spiritual one week and the next week you might as well be lost again. Because one week you're encouraged and the next week you're depressed. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean that God cancels the natural curse, the laws of the curse for us. He, he, he doesn't suspend the natural laws of sickness and decay and death for us just because we go to church. Because the good and the bad comes to both the good and the bad. And I can expect the dark threads of life to be woven into my story just as it is in the story of my neighbor who hasn't been to church for years. And so what John does is he opens the door and he welcomes us into a home where Christ has been, a home where believers live, a home where the Savior has been honored, and there are struggles in this home. There is anxiety because my brother is sick. It will soon turn to disappointment when the Savior doesn't come to help him. I ask the Lord to come and he delays. And all of the struggles that we face in this life are found in this home. And if you've never been here, it's because you haven't lived long enough, but stick around. You'll one day be in the house of Bethlehem. I thought about this passage this week, and there's so many ways to go. But I want to preach for a minute on he whom thou lovest is sick. He whom thou lovest is sick. And there's three struggles that I find in this portion of the story. And the first is that there is a struggle with sickness. Sickness. He whom thou lovest is sick. Now that seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Because if you love him, why is he sick? Does that not seem strange to you? Because sometimes we think that. Lord, if you love me, would you take away this sickness or would you take this thing away from my life? In fact, some faith healers would tell you that, 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 that Christians don't get sick, that if you've got enough faith that you can command disease and sicknesses to leave your body. Funny thing about that is that every one of them eventually gets sick, go to the hospital, and die. Every last one of them. 
And so we know, we know that Jesus loving you is not a cure-all from disease. And by the way, if you do get sick, it has nothing to do with whether Jesus loves you or not. He still loves you. He whom thou lovest is sick. Now, we don't know the nature of Lazarus' sicknesses. We, we, we have no idea. The only diagnosis is that he's sick, and it is serious because in a couple of days he's going to be dead. I don't know what he was sick of. I do know why he was sick. He is sick because of the glory of God. I'll talk about that in a minute. So that, so that rules out chastisement. He's not sick because of some sin in his life. It is a natural sickness that is common to other men, and God's going to use it. In fact, God even caused it as an occasion to get glory for himself. And, and, and sickness is something that we are all familiar with because of the curse that we live under. I know more about cancer right now than I ever dreamed that I would know. Did you know that there's over 100 types of cancer and that it will attack every part of your body? I never dreamed six months ago that I would ever have a reason to Google multiple myeloma or bone marrow cancer, but I have read more articles on multiple myeloma in the last couple of months than I have read on anything else. And, and, and sometimes... Children are born with diseases. Sometimes they develop in older years. But, but let me help you with something. Right now in your body, there are disease cells or DNA that one day if you stick around this earth long enough, it's going to explode into some kind of disease. Now, now we ought to take care of ourselves. We ought to eat well. We ought to exercise. All these things that I don't do, we should do. And we ought to take care of our bodies. But I'm going to tell you something. In the end, you're going to lose the battle. You are going to get sick. Now, now, why sickness? Sometimes sickness is because of sin. The operative word is sometimes. The fall of man corrupts the health of man, and we have been living with the consequences ever since. We can say that it's the world that we live in. Sickness is the fruit of the fall. It doesn't mean that all sickness is because of some personal sin in your body. We, we, we know that. But sin is the result of fallen humanity. And by the way, it just may well be that sin is because of a personal or sickness is because of a personal sin. But it's not always. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, or 1 Corinthians 11, Paul spoke of those who were sick because they had violated the Lord's table. Some were sick and some had even died. So you may or may not be suffering because of sin, but I'm going to tell you something. I would at least want to rule that out as a possibility if I was constantly sick. I would at least want to say, Lord, if you are sending sickness as a messenger, I want to get the message so the messenger can leave. Sometimes sickness is because of sin. Do you know that sometimes sickness is because of Satan? Satan is a devourer, and at times God has given him permission to afflict the body of a believer. He doesn't have the power to afflict sickness upon believers at will, but sometimes God has given him that permission. I, I think about the story of Job, a man who, who, who fears God, and Satan is permitted to smite him with boils from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. In the Gospels, there are people who are afflicted through a spirit. That there, is a, there is a son, there is a son who has epilepsy and it's demon-inspired. There is a woman who has a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. In fact, in fact, Paul himself said that he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Sometimes sickness is caused by Satan. Can I tell you that sometimes sickness comes from God? 
Now I've already said that sometimes God uses sickness as chastisement, but not always. Sometimes he sends sickness to teach us, to prepare us, to, to, to soften our hearts. There's a lot of reasons why. Not every, and I want, to make, I want to make this clear. Not every believer that is sick is in sin. We cannot be like the neighbors in John 9 who looks at the man born blind and says, who did sin? Him or his parents. We, we don't believe that. And, 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 and none of us take sickness and, and immediately, we, we, immediately we, we pray for it to be removed. But there are things that you can learn in infirmity that you cannot learn in health. Weak, here's what weakness does. Weakens, weakness softens our heart and it sobers our mind. When you are weak, you have more pity on the weak. This week, this week, we Andrew and I went out to the cemetery, and the caretaker was there, and we picked out a little plot. And tomorrow morning, we go out and we have a little funeral service for my grandbaby. And when we went out there, and we picked out a plot, and the caretaker was showing us the different places. And in the in the Milton Cemetery, they have a little little section that's called Babyland. It's about as big as as that part right there of the platform, and it's just it's where they've buried buried little babies, just little two foot. And so we were looking at that, and I noticed that, that, that there were a number of tombstones, simple tombstones that just said unknown infant. That's all, just unknown infant. And I asked her about that, and these are babies that have died, and nobody knew who they were. Nobody claimed them. They, they didn't know. And, and so they, they, they buried them, and then they, they put out word Hey, if anybody wants to buy a tombstone for this baby, this unknown baby, and people did. And I'm going to tell you, I have, listen, I have never in my life thought that I should volunteer to work in a cemetery. It's never crossed my mind. But when I was looking at that, I told her, I said, get my number. I said, the next time you need tombstones for unknown infant, you call me. I want to be involved. The next baby now, I want to buy the curve. I want to help. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, when you go through things, it'll soften your heart toward things that have never been soft toward before. Sometimes sickness comes from God. So it's his, he whom thou lovest is sick. Sick. It's a paradox to me. In Philippians chapter 2, Epaphroditus. Paul said he was sick nigh unto death. Sick nigh unto death. Well, why Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is the pastor of the church of Philippi. Epaphroditus, he's my brother. He's my companion in labor. He's your fellow soldier. He's your messenger. Hey, hey, Epaphroditus is busy in the work of the Lord. So in my way of thinking, why don't you get somebody who ain't doing nothing for God and make them sick? No, no, Epaphroditus is sick. Sometimes we struggle with sickness. Do you know what sickness will do? Sickness will teach you something about yourself as well as teach you something about God. I'm going to tell you, you get sick, your priorities, your perspective on life is going to change real quick. You'll get a real clear picture of what is important. Job got sick. At the end of Job's sickness, here's what he said. He said, I abhor myself. I found out some things about myself in my trials that I didn't like. David said it was good that I was afflicted. And I just say it'd be good for us to see who we really are. To see what perspectives in life are skewed. What, what, is really, what is really in our heart. See all the things that I stress over that aren't really very important. Sickness will help you with that. I struggle with sickness. But then in this passage there is a struggle with the Savior. 
the story is told to the lives of different characters. But whenever Jesus is one of the characters, he's always the main character. Whenever Jesus is in the picture, we want to learn what we can about him. And I would tell you that there is no story in the Bible that shows his humanity and his deity as clearly as in this story. Here, here, here he is, he's so human. That when he does come to Bethany and he hears that Lazarus has died, he asks, where have they laid him? And he wept. That's humanity. His heart is grieved because his friend is dead. And it's so real and raw to see him weeping over the grave of Lazarus that those that were standing around in verse 36, behold how he loved him. But he's so much God. That he called Lazarus from the grave. Spoiled the victory of death that he had for four days. Pity as a man, power as God. And it's to both of those that Mary and Martha appeal when they send somebody to go get Jesus. Go get Jesus because it is his friend whom he loves that is sick. Go get Jesus because he's got the power to do something about it. And they don't appeal to Jesus on the basis that Lazarus loves him. They appeal to Jesus on the basis that he loves Lazarus. He loves Lazarus so much that it will touch his heart just to know that he is sick. In fact, they are so sure of the Lord's help that they don't even send a request. If you read it, they just said, go get him. And the messenger said, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. And he doesn't ask him what to do. I'm just informing you, I'm just letting you know that Lazarus is sick and I know that you will know what to do from there. And that's what we have done before. Lord, I'm just telling you where I am. I'm not making any requests. I have ideas, but I'm sure that your idea is better than mine. I just want you to know that this is where I am and this is what I'm going through. And I know that you know, but I'm just putting it out there and saying, help, Lord. But, but their confidence in Christ, it very quickly turns to disappointment because Jesus does not respond the way that they have expected. If I was writing the script of this story, I would have Jesus dropping everything and leaving and going to Bethany right away. But the Lord doesn't always do it the way that we think he should do it. In fact, let, let me tie something together here for you real quick, all right? When Jesus had left Jerusalem the last time in the chapter 10, he had led his disciples into the Judean wilderness. Look at verse 39, chapter 10, verse 39. Watch this. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. So, so Jesus has retreated back to the same place where he started. He's gone right back to that place. Nobody knows where it's at. Gone back to that place where John was baptized, where he was baptized, where his ministry began. So he, his reception in Jerusalem, that they're trying to kill him. So he goes to a place where he could rest and where people would believe him. And, and, and look what happens in verse 42. The Bible says, and many believed on him there. So, so, so he has gone to Jerusalem. All they want to do is kill him. And so now he goes back to the place where he started. He's ministering there. And, and, and people are believing on him. And, and the disciples don't want him to go because when we go back, it's two miles away from where somebody wants to kill you. And so, so yes, yes, my friend is sick, but he's two miles away from where people want to kill me. And yes, your friend is sick, but you're enjoying ministry success here. And yes, your friend is sick, but all the disciples have voted no on going back. And so Jesus stays 
For what a strange way to respond to he whom thou lovest is sick. And you begin to feel the tension in the words of Martha and Mary. Look at verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Look at verse 32. Mary, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Is it possible for faith and doubt to reside in the same heart? Is it possible to be believing yet unbelieving? And your theology may say, no, my experience says yes, because I have been there before. There have been many times when I could have given you verses of theology, but my heart told me something different. And when we think about the response of the Lord Jesus to the news that Lazarus is sick, we have to admit it's not what we expected. Notice, if you would, that Jesus is distant. The best that we can tell, Jesus is about 20 miles away from where Lazarus was. It took a day for the messengers to get there. Jesus waits two days, a day to get to Bethany. So by the time he gets there, it is four days late. And when Jesus got to Bethany, you'll find out that some Jews that knew him from Jerusalem have already come and they are comforting Mary and Martha. And so Jesus is not even the first responder. He comes and it's been four days. He is at a long distance when they needed him. Have you ever struggled with the distance of God? Have you ever tried to pray and the heavens were brass? Have you ever tried to cry? I think it would be good if every once in a while we could take off our halos and fold our wings and just be real people every once in a while. You ever tried to get a hold of God and found out you couldn't get a hold of God? I mean, I heard, I heard that He is an ever-present help in time of need, but I sure didn't feel Him present when I needed Him. I, I have a preacher friend going through some dark waters right now, and that's all that I'll say about it because of who, who, who may be listening. He texted a group of preachers this week and asked us to pray for a particular thing, and, and it didn't go as he thought it would. So later in the day, he texted this group of preachers again, and I'm in the text. And he said, I appreciate the prayers. However, he must be on a long journey and could not answer. That's a preacher. I think that's a dangerous thing to say. God's not at fault. God didn't do this. And, and, and it's, near, it's near blasphemous to say that God's away, and he couldn't bother to answer. But have you ever felt like God was distant? And God was not only distant, but Jesus is delayed. He gets to Bethany four days late. Lord, if thou hadst been there, my brother would not have died. I would suggest to you that's the reason why he didn't come. He didn't come because after two days he tells his disciples we're going and our friend Lazarus sleepeth, they, they, they confuse it. He says Lazarus is dead. He didn't bother to come until he is dead. In fact, here, here's a text for you. Look at the last part of verse number five. Look at it. The last part of, I'm sorry, the last part of verse 14. Lazarus is dead. Verse 15. And I am glad. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. 
I, I imagine the messengers, I, I imagine them running all day to get to Jesus. Maybe this evening by the time they get there, they're out of breath trying to get the words out. And surely Jesus is going to drop everything. He's going to run right back to Bethany. But imagine their surprise when he gave no indication that he's going. And the next morning, they're going to start back to Bethany without Jesus, and there has to be confusion. By the time they get back, Jesus, Lazarus has already been dead, and they've already buried him. His sisters believe in the resurrection, so there is hope, but, 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 but he's dead now. All hope is dashed. And they knew that Jesus could have healed him, Jesus could have raised him, and now there's no indication he's going to do anything. Why didn't he come? Why, why didn't he say something? And for four days, there's no word. There's no promise. There's no indication. There is nothing. Have you ever endured the silence of God? One of the hardest things you'll ever do as a Christian is when you pour your heart out to God and you can't hear back from Him. He's delayed and then Jesus is disappointed. The messenger hears the news. Here's the only thing Jesus says. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now stop right there. If you have not read any farther in the story, if that's the end of it, do you think Lazarus is going to live or do you think Lazarus is going to die? What, what's going to happen? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And I imagine the messenger hears that and he feels some relief. I cannot wait to get back to the family and relay the news. Jesus said Lazarus will be okay. We knew Jesus would come through because what a friend we have in Jesus. I must tell Jesus. He said the sickness is not unto death. I can see that messenger coming back. Gets to the house and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus doesn't even bother to knock. Walks in. Mary, where are you? Martha, Martha, I saw Jesus. Wouldn't you like to hear what he had to say? And Mary comes out of the back room and she's wiping her eyes. And there's Martha and you can tell that her eyes are red. I saw Jesus. Here's what he said. He said to tell you that the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. By the way, where's Lazarus? Lazarus is dead. He died yesterday. We buried him this morning. And we're only looking at part of the story. I know that there's a resurrection coming, but for four days they didn't know what was happening. They cried for four days. Their hearts are grieved for four days. Their hearts are broken. For four days, Jesus doesn't always answer the prayer the way that I ask him to answer it, and he doesn't always do it in my time. And I believe that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, and wouldn't it have been nice to send word back to Mary and Martha to let you know that in four days I'm going to do the biggest miracle that has taken place yet, but have you ever been disappointed with divinity? Have you ever struggled with understanding the Savior? There's a struggle with sickness. There's a struggle with the Savior. There's a struggle with sovereignty. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. It surprises me that most modern versions change that statement to say that this sickness will not end in death. But it did end in death. And Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. Jesus says the purpose for the sickness is not death. The purpose of the sickness is the glory of God. 
the end result of this sickness will be death. He may have to go to the valley of death, but death is not the purpose. The glory of God is the reason for all of this. The reason he is sick, catch this, the reason he is sick is to give me an opportunity to do something to get glory for myself. That's the reason for his sickness. I'm going to do something because of his suffering that's going to cause other people to worship me. That's why Lazarus is sick. Oh, we talk about how worthy God is, and he is worthy of all glory. Oh, Lord, bless this service and get glory out of this service. Lord, may everything be done to your praise and your honor and your glory. But what if God wanted to get glory through our sickness and not our singing? Would that be okay? How much do we really want the glory of God? Would it be okay? Would it be okay if God put you through a valley for his glory? Would it be okay to take on an infirmity if somehow God could get glory out of that? I want God to do something mighty in my life. But what if God gets glory by doing something making me weak? Oh, make me a great preacher and get glory. What if he gets glory by me being a poor preacher? I want to sing and everybody gets glory out of my great singing. What if God gets more glory out of you falling on your face? Would you be willing to be a William Borden and give your life on the mission field at age 23 if God would get glory out of that? Would you be willing to be a David Brader and give your life at 29 on the mission field if God would get glory out of that? When we go through trials, here's what we think. How is this going to benefit me? I know all things work together for my good. I know God's going to do something good in my life. But here's the greater question is how will this work out for his good? I know God can work all things out for my good. But I want God to take this infirmity. I want God to take what I'm going through. And I want him to get some glory out of it. Am I willing to be a vessel for the glory of God today? I give this to you and I'm done. You'll notice in verse 2 as I mentioned. Verse 2 is in parentheses. It means it hasn't happened yet. It actually happens in chapter 12. Look at it. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Chapter 11 takes place sometime before this, and now Jesus has come back to Bethany six days before the crucifixion. And if you'll read chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3 very carefully, you'll notice it does not say that they are in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It says that they are in Bethany. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. We assume it's their house because Jesus had been there before and Martha is serving. I don't believe that they were. Hold your finger right here. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Let me show you something in your Bible. I'm almost done. Matthew chapter 26. And look at verse number 6. Matthew 26 and verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. It's a flashback scene. It's a scene that actually took place a few days earlier. 
Some believe that there were two, two different anointings. I, I don't believe that. I, I believe there was only one. When John chapter 12 tells the story, he says it is six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 2, it is two days before the Passover, which is the day of crucifixion. So Matthew takes us right up to two days before the Passover, and then he does a flashback scene to four days earlier from that. That's when Jesus comes into Bethany, and it says he has supper in the house of a certain Simon the leper. Now, it doesn't say this, but I believe it's Simon that had been a leper. Because of his leper, you can't associate with him. Simon had been a leper. He wasn't a leper right now. And the only cure for leprosy in that day was Jesus. So putting two to two, two and two together, Simon has probably been healed by Jesus and he holds a supper with Jesus as the guest of honor to say thank you. The 12 disciples would have been there and Lazarus, Mary, and Martha would have been there because they lived in Bethany. And if you go back to John's account, you find Martha is serving and Mary is at the feet of Jesus and she has this alabaster box of ointment. It is a box of perfume and it's very expensive. And Mark will tell you that it's 300 pence worth, which is about a year's wages, if you can imagine, a bottle of perfume few that cost about a year's wages and John says that she poured it at his feet. Matthew says she poured it on his head so I believe that she poured it on his head and it fell down to his feet and she just anointed his whole body. And Mark will tell you that Mary understood something. She's paid attention to his announcements about his death and his resurrection and she understood that. He has raised Lazarus from the dead and what a preview, what a preview of the resurrection. He has raised Lazarus from the dead her heart is so full of love and adoration and worship. And she takes that bottle and she breaks it open. And she anoints the Lord Jesus. And when she breaks it and she pours that ointment out, she can never give that to anyone else ever again. It is all for you and only John says that Judas Iscariot complained about the way so all the disciples chimed in. This is extravagant. It's too much, too emotional. It's just, it's, it's just too extravagant. In fact, you might read it and think it's a little bit much too. I mean, I mean, maybe she could have just dabbed a little bit on his feet and that would have been sufficient. I'd rather be like Mary that could not restrain herself than the critics that says, that's just too much, too much, too much. But watch this. Come, come back to Matthew 26. I'm done. Look at this. Look at this. Verse 12, Matthew 26, 12. For in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever the gospel is preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial for her. She was testifying that I believe he's going to die. And I believe he's going to be buried. I believe he's going to resurrect. And I'm going to anoint his body for burial now. Some commentators think, Brother, Brother Buddy, that the ointment that she used was the ointment that they would use for bodies because Jews didn't embalm. They would anoint that body and put spices on it to try to preserve it. And, and, and some think that that was what she was using. Now watch, watch, watch this, watch this. In Mark chapter 16, the morning of the resurrection, there's three women. There's three women that come to the tomb and they come with spices and ointment. And you know what they've come to do? They've come to anoint the body of Jesus. They're hoping that a soldier will roll the door away, that they can come in and they can anoint the body of Jesus. But when they get there, they discover they are too late. The stone has already been rolled away and he's already gone. 
And the only person in the Bible to ever anoint the body of Jesus is this Mary because she took the opportunity that she had. Don't miss the detail. Don't miss it. In John chapter 12, verse 2, John is going to give you a detail. Matthew and Mark don't give you. Look at it. John 11, verse 2. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Chapter 12, verse 2. There made him a supper. Martha served. Lazarus, one of them, sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given a covering for her. A woman's hair is her glory. It's her glory. You know what she's doing? She's bowing down at his feet. Four days of heartache and tears and wondering, where are you? Why can't I hear you? But she's bowing down at his feet with a heart of adoration and love. And she's taking her glory. And she's laying it at his feet. No glory for me, but may all the glory be I know more hurting people right now than I've ever known before. I never thought, Anna, come. I want you to find ice cream girl. I never thought, I never thought that I would go to a funeral home and that I would pick out a casket for my baby granddaughter. I never thought. Tomorrow our family is going to gather at Milton Cemetery. This family, we're going to have a little service. I don't know what we're going to do, but we have a little graveside service. We're going to lay to rest a little baby. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't write that in the script. That was never in the plans for our family and our life. That's not there. And I cannot tell you why, but this I know. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God.